My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives in all the genre of scripture and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. So here we are entering into the latter part of Exodus together. And so we want to encourage you to do a couple of things. I want you to continue to listen to this online broadcast. And if you've missed anything, over the last handful of weeks, we want you to go back. We want you to review. We still want you to ask questions. So a way to interact with us continually is to just comment or ask questions underneath whatever social media channel you listen to. So ways you can support us, listen to us. Does anyone listen to us? Yeah, they do. But I'm really hoping that more people listen to us here in the future. <clears throat> ways you can support like our Instagram page like our Facebook page. You can, of course, comment underneath, like I've said a thousand times. And to financially support our ministry, what we want you to do is go to resonatelife.org. And coming up, there will be other ways that you can financially support us under the Give tab, resonatelife.org. Under the Give tab, you can financially support us. We desire that you do financially support us. It goes to 100%, goes to our ministry here in Sherwood, and also to develop this online broadcast. This does not replace your everyday fellowship and meeting together. We don't want to just replace something that you're doing. We want to add to your life. So we want to encourage you to find a church body and a community in which you live. So you are joining us Thursday night at 830 for this podcast. We are live, and this is going to be replayed on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Each Thursday night, we get together, we come together to get a better understanding of the material in Exodus so far that we are covering. We are calling this for now a deeper dive. And so if you've been following us online, remember that today we are in Exodus 24, 1 through 34, 35. That is a long section. We're not going to cover that long section in total tonight, but we're going to read chapter 34, but we're going to cover some major topics. I'm pretty excited. I'm joined together with, joined today together with me, Sherea Bodner and Jake Flug. These are two of my leaders at Resonate. Good evening, Jake and Sherea. Good Whoa. evening. I tried to mix up my intro a little bit. Nice, you did good. So I'm so excited tonight because we have some fun things to cover, some controversial things to cover. Do you think we're controversial? No. I, I think we might be less controversial tonight than we have been. I know. Tonight is like way less controversial. <clears throat> but we do have some controversial things to talk about. And uh, I think this is good stuff. Jake's got a theory. I got a theory. Shrey has got a theory. Shrey has a concluding theory. We got all theories come together. So as I was in the pre-work, I was just like, this is our Zondervan deal. I think this is a Zondervan <laughs> deal. This is, this is the book deal that we got. But speaking of books, before we continue, this is our next series that we're going over starting the Thursday before Easter. The Thursday before Easter, which, what date is that? Somebody give me the date. April 15th. April 14th is Easter. No, April, April, 17th. April 17th is Easter. Okay. April 14th. This is when we start Atlas of the heart. Like my graphic, this is actually the whole book. And you can see that it's not that big. 
and it has lovely pictures on the inside. Mm. So it's not a hard read, but it is a deep read. It is something that will challenge you probably for the rest of your life. So if you want a copy of that, go to Amazon or wherever you buy your books or your local bookstore. I think it's 18 bucks online. You can get that shipped to you probably by 11 o'clock tonight. So, <clears throat> so this is your Atlas of the Heart. This is what we're going to do starting April 14th. Where do we go when we feel pain? Where do we go when we feel fear? Where do we go when we feel guilt? All the emotions we're going to cover from a biblical perspective. Um, so I'm really excited for Brene Brown's uh, book and this series coming up. All right, Exodus 34, let's jump in. Let's read it and get started. Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, <clears throat> cut two stone tablets like the first ones. I'll write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablet, which you broke to pieces. Get ready in the morning and come up to Mount Sinai. Stand there on top of the mountain in front of me. No one else can come up with you. Don't allow anyone even to be seen anywhere on the mountain. Don't even let sheep and cattle graze in front of the mountain. So Moses cut two stone tablets of the first ones. He got up early in the morning and climbed up Mount Sinai, just as the Lord had commanded him. He carried the two stone tablets in his hands. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God who is compassionate and merciful, very patient, full of great loyalty and faithfulness, showing great loyalty to a thousand generations, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, yet by no means clearing the guilty, punishing for their parents' sins, the sins, their children and their grandchildren, as well as the third and fourth generation. As Moses, at once, Moses bowed down to the ground and worshiped. He said, if you approve of me, my Lord, please go along with us. Although these stubborn people, these people are stubborn, forgive our guilt and our sin and take us as your own possession. The Lord said, I now make a covenant in front of all your people. I'll perform dramatic displays of power that have never been done before anywhere on earth or in any nation, all the people who are around you will see the Lord, what the Lord does, because I will do an awesome thing with you. Be sure to obey what I command you today. I'm about to drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Be careful that you don't make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you are going, or it will become dangerous trap for you. You must tear down their altars, smash their sacred stone pillars, and cut down their sacred poles. You must not bow down to their God because the Lord is passionate. The Lord's name means a passionate God. Don't make a covenant with those who live in the land. Don't even, when they prostitute themselves with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, they may invite you and you may end up eating some of the sacrifice. Then you might go and choose their daughters as your wives for your sons and their daughters who prostitute themselves but their gods might lead your sons to prostitute themselves with their gods. Don't make metal gods for yourself. Observe the festival of unleavened bread. You should eat unleavened bread for seven days, as I commanded you at the time set in, set in time of the month of Abib, 
because it was in that month of Abib that you came out of Egypt. Every first offspring is mine. That includes all your male livestock, the oldest offspring of cows and sheep, but a donkey, oldest offspring, you may ransom with the sheep. Or if you don't ransom it, you must break its neck. You should ransom all of your oldest sons. No one should appear before me empty-handed. You should do your work for six days, but on the seventh day, you should rest. Even during plowing or harvest time, you should rest. You should observe the festival of weeks for the early produce of wheat harvest, for the wheat harvest, and the gathering festival at the end of the year. All of your males should appear three times a year before the Lord God, Israel's God. I will drive out nations before you and I'll extend your borders. No one will desire and, and try to take your land if you go up and appear before the Lord your God three times a year. Don't slaughter the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. The sacrifice of the Passover festival shouldn't be left over until morning. Bring the best of the early produce of your farmland to the Lord God's temple. Don't boil a young goat in his mother's milk. The Lord, said to, the Lord said to Moses, write down these words. Because by these words, I hereby make a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat or drink any, or drink, eat any bread or drink any water. He wrote on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the 10 words. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. And as he came down from the mountain with the two covenant tablets in his hands, Moses didn't realize that the skin of his face shone brightly because he had been talking with God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw the skin of Moses' face shining brightly, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called them closer. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and Moses spoke with them. After that, all the Israelites came near as well, and Moses commanded them everything the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went into the Lord's presence to speak with him, Moses would take the veil off until he came out again. When Moses came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, the Israelites would see that the skin of Moses' face was shining brightly. So Moses would put the veil on his face again until the next time he went to speak with the Lord. Thanks, Jake, for reading that. All right. So every time I read the month of Abib, I get stumbled up too in everything I read with the month of Abib. What is the month of Abib? The uh, seventh month. First month. March. It's March. I had to look it up the other day before I started this. So month of Abib actually is Nissan, what the Babylonians changed to Nissan. So every time we read the month of Abib or Nissan, it's the same. It's in March, which is kind of fitting. It's right now. Here we are. Here we are in the month of Abib. Israelites left the Egypt uh, powers during March. We got uh, some good stuff happening uh, in March in Nissan. All right. So this is where we're at. We had uh, put us in context. We left uh, Egyptian rule and power. We crossed the Red Sea. Now we're on the other side. We got Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the top of Mount Sinai. He receives the law. We have the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, which we went over 
last week, correct? Is that where and, we're at? Yeah. And this last, week. And this week. And then uh, this is the end of the book of the covenant. So now we have the law, the end of the book of the covenant that we see in uh, chapter 34 towards the end. And that's where we are seeing these strange, uh, these strange um, laws of don't boil your babies in the milk and such. Uh, doesn't make sense to us made total sense to them because they had to have a law to that covered that. So obviously that was a practice would have been a practice probably in Egyptian culture. And uh, maybe it was a law in Canaanite culture uh, as well. And so this was, this was a edict or a law that helped train them to live in Canaanite land and to be a blessing to the nations and holy and set apart uh, not just like the Canaanites or not just like the Egyptians. So there was a, there was a, a series of laws. All right. So in, but back in chapter 24, uh, that's where we're going to start. Correct. 24. Yeah. Uh, 24 one is where we're going to be. And this here basically is this tabernacle introduction. We have the house of God basically is a mobile home. It's a double wide for God. Uh, it's pretty nice. There's some nice trappings in there. Uh, we have some pretty precious stones that are happening. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit, but before we get started on that, there's a meal again, there's food where the 70 happens to be 70. Wait for it. 70. <laughs> it just seems like a good number in Hebrew. So the 70 elders gather uh, with and join the leaders. And there's all kinds of leaders that, that join them. And then they have this wonderful meal. So I thought we would start out with, uh, with how the ancients treated meals and talk about that for a minute. Cause I think that that's important to the story. So, you know, King Arthur's court, we have a bunch of, you know, the story goes, right? Where we have them sitting around tables eating food. Um, anytime you see a depiction of royalty or leadership meeting, they're always got that big old turkey leg, you know, or the big old whatever uh, piece of fish or whatever they're eating uh, right in front of them. And so it seems like that food is a sign of something. So let's talk about what is food a sign of? We talked about the sacredity of food, but what is like the food to sign up? Does anyone have any guesses? I mean, at its lowest level, I would say community, but I think functionally right here, we're also talking about covenant. Yeah. Do you have a guess, Jay? Cause I have a guess I'm, I'm throwing something out there on the table. Uh, food is a symbol of power. Okay. And so it means it's a symbol of surplus and a provision. Mm. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, the Romanians when in 1987, 88, I forget when it is, when they, Ceausescu fell. But one of the main reasons he fell was he posted a picture in a newspaper of himself eating at this huge feast at his, uh, at his palace. And I think most of his people were starving that, that Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. I mean, that's at Christmas, not Thanksgiving. They wouldn't have Thanksgiving, would they? 
uh, but most people <laughs> no they wouldn't they not wouldn't. in Romania most people were starving and here he's throwing this huge feast out and so if I think about the emotion behind feasting it is to show surplus and provision I was going to kind of say the same thing I think it's just a sign of abundance and sharing you know, when we have a meal, we have a prepped meal, you come to my house and then I share a meal with you. Sharing in a meal is just a phrase that we use. We share in a meal means that I have something to share. So, so it's about abundance, but it's also about generosity. And it's about, I'm giving you something and we're both giving something to one another. And then that hits on Sheree's point, covenant. So I think that all meals represent covenant there's a covenantal idea behind meal sharing but just the, the this idea of covenant there's more of a formal uh covenant but i think just right at the fundamental level generosity sharing of abundance provision we're all hitting the mark potlatch, um, potlatch right and used to wield uh abuse and power as well can be so we can break covenant with meals as well so we can seal the deal and we can break covenants with with a meal but this was to seal a deal what what covenant are we establishing here with these 70 leaders do you guys know uh the covenant to be established is the mosaic covenant so the covenant of the ten commandments and of the the book of commandments and so right. um, you have pretty significant covenants to the Old Testament. You have the Noahic covenant when Noah comes out of the boat. And God said that there'll never be, there'll never be another flood. And so you have the rainbow. You have the Abrahamic covenant. And it's you'll be a father of many nations. And then you have you have a covenant with Jacob or Israel when it comes out of that that, that God will sustain. And then the Mosaic covenant is the last covenant of the Old Testament. And that's when, when I will be your God and you'll be my people. We have the Davidic covenant. Oh yeah. Davidic covenant. Thanks. Yeah. That's like a big one. <laughs> Not the last one. It's most important probably for that. <laughs> yeah. oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was it's all good. It's all good. So, so those are the covenants. We got some covenants in there. And then uh, let's talk about meals. So there's other important meals. Now we have Passover. We understand that that's, you know, an important meal, but are there any other meals that you guys can think of uh, that are significant in scripture? I mean, the last supper, which was Passover. Right. right. Is there any other meals? The first meal that we know of in Genesis three, that was a pretty mm. important one. So I was thinking about that. <clears throat> And that's an example of breaking covenant mm -hmm. with yeah. meal. So is that your power play that you're talking about? Does that relate to power? Could. It yeah. could. Trey, yeah, I think, I think so. Yeah, go ahead, Shreya. Uh, it could or it couldn't. Like, I'm not... I'm not in Eve's head. So I, I don't <laughs> well, know. And, and I want to be careful about placing blame in a motive because 
she's taken too much of that over the millennia. Well, do you think it's a power, though, for them, just as a, a people group, to God versus to each other? Hmm. Could be. Because I, I, I feel like they were... Tr- go ahead. Blame. Pull the blame piece out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. As I think about it, because I'm just thinking out loud right now, as I think about it, I would I would say that meal. Hopefully Mm -hmm. it was apples and peanut butter. Right. So that meal (laughs) um, with caramel would have what we're getting our stories mixed up, I think. What are you talking about? That's more like the, the poison dipped apple. Oh gosh. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so that first like breaking of covenant was around food, mm-hmm. but I think it was a power play between like you got Satan and God or evil and God, serpent and God. Um, however that looks, whatever that is in the garden and you have them knowing better, like they thought they knew better. So that, that I guess would be a pride or a power of some kind. Could be. Yeah. I think there's room for that. I think there's room for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it'll preach. I'll put that in next year's <laughs> next year's <laughs> lineup. Yeah, totally. Okay. Any other any other important food? I, I can't really uh, think of one except one that had to do with, you know, like something very important. Uh, we've talked about feeding the five thousand. Yeah. Uh yeah, we talked about that. Talked about the uh, the woman in the vessel feeding mm-hmm. Elisha. Mm-hmm. Uh we did we didn't talk about the ravens feeding Elijah. Mm-hmm. We have the manna and quail, magic bread, magic birds. Yeah, yeah, that's an important one. That's an important one. A lot of covenantal things. One of the biggest uh you have a, like it's not a meal per se, but it's Peter and the sheet. <clears throat> mm. yeah yeah and that moses, all things are clean moses having a meal with uh raul yeah well jethro or whatever his Obed. name was. <laughs> right so there's a lot of meals that yeah. covenant is built around i think that every time we have a meal it's an opportunity to build upon covenants that we have with others so our table is probably pretty sacred. And I think that we need to start treating it more such. as such that mm-hmm. we would come out from in front of our TV sets and look each other and straight in the face and maybe share in the meal in, in some way, in a, in a significant way. <clears throat> so feeding of the sense. feeding of the 5,000 and Peter's vision were the two meals that I was thinking of that were, you know, probably pretty important in the, in the new Testament the sheet and the sheet coming yeah. out from heaven. Yes. Right. Right. Any other, any other meals, sacred meals. Jesus tended to go over to people's houses for dinner. Oh yeah. Dined with notorious sinners. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Zac- and then Zacchaeus. go ahead. Mm-hmm. Zacchaeus. 
Okay. Yeah. Mm, some more. I mean, there's there's a lot of eating. Mm-hmm. In uh, I want to say I'm looking it up right now because <clears throat> we were talking about Revelation before, and uh, the one. Yeah, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. So we have the eating of the tree of life in the end. That that is that uh, we live between the trees, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have the tree of life in Revelation that we are to share in covenant again with with God. So so yeah, I thought that was just an important important idea that we need to think about the meals in scripture more covenantially. Is that the word covenantally? Yeah. Something like that. And, and think of them as more of a holy presence of God that he's sealing the deal with meals, but also we are in relationship, love God, love people. And we're to share in that. All right. So something that the reason why I hurried through that and sounded hurried is we got something really important to talk about. Here's our, here's our theory. Um, that we're going to kind of mash all of our theories together. So in our notes, the two of you were on number two, and this is where I brought up several weeks ago that I had a theory. And my theory was that the book of Exodus was a depiction and you could overlay the book of Exodus on the totality of the universe from creation all the way to revelation and how, how are the end times the 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 end of the world and heaven, right? Where heaven and earth, earth, uh, heaven comes down to earth and we are recreated into a new garden scene. So between the gardens, we have all of this chaos. But Exodus is definitely a recreation story. So we know that that it's a recreation story. And my theory was that you can overlay Exodus over the First of all, that we have the presence of God. We have the Israelite people. Um, they enter into a chaos, which is all the plagues. And then the splitting of water, which is salvation. And the other side, which is the land of milk and honey, which is heaven. So we have chaos and then things emerge, splitting of water. The water separates just like Genesis. And then we enter into a new heaven and a new earth, kind of like what the totality of the universe is supposed to be like, we picked that apart for a couple of weeks. It worked for some, it wouldn't work for others. And that's okay. You know, there's some, all metaphors and theories break down at some point. Right. But here's some facts about Exodus that we know right now. And here's the new kind of combined theory. So I threw that out there. We picked that apart. Jake came up with another theory. Oh, let me mention that one where his theory was, and I actually still am kind of hung up on this theory, like in my mind where I'm like, "Mm, that's possible where the Ark of the Covenant wasn't just a, you know, box that they built. It was probably maybe a box they rebuilt or something that was already in existence. They don't know how it came about. So they told the story of, well, it got built kind of this way that it was a bone box and it was like a sarcophagus box. It was a seat and and a stool and a, but it was a box and that box they carried out uh, for Joseph's bones. And so <clears throat> Joseph's bones were supposed to be removed from Egypt, uh, put into the promised land, correct? Somewhere there in scripture. Mm-hmm. And so yep. 
yeah, I'm just kind of rolling through. So you got to correct me if I'm wrong. And those bones were carried possibly in the Ark of the Covenant. There's language of Ark, you know, there's Genesis right there where we have Noah and the Ark that salvation comes through this Ark. So now we have this box, but where did they get the box and why? And, and let's say they built the box in the way that Exodus said that they built the box. It's definitely Egyptian looking. And so however it looks, you know, they, they built it like an Egyptian sarcophagus. So, so, uh, so yeah, so that was Jake's theory. And then Shrey's theory kind of concludes this in between mash together um, book deal that we got going on here. So the three facts about Exodus that, that I read as this is pretty much spot on is first, the book of Exodus was written in exile. We talked about that in the first couple of weeks. We cleaned that up and we said, okay, we know that the book of Exodus is written in exile. It's not a historical account because there is no evidence in outside of Israel, outside of Israel, nothing in Egyptian history, nothing in paintings on the walls, no carvings on the stones uh, that Israel was in Egypt in the fashion that they said, especially in the fashion that they said that they were in Egypt. And so we talked about the cover-up. We talked about, well, Egyptians wouldn't have really talked about that because that was embarrassing, but it would have been somewhere and it would have been uh, carved somewhere, painted somewhere or recorded somewhere. Uh, and they've never been able to find any kind of historical evidence when they have a historical evidence of other embarrassing things of Egypt. So we kind of cleaned that up and went, okay, that's spot on that. It's probably not a historical story, but it's a mythicized history. And mythicized history is history about the gods, where we talk about big subject matter and the gods fighting the gods, right? So we have all the Egyptian gods, we have the Yahweh God, we have Satan, Pharaoh, we have all these gods and evil spirits. And it's like the, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, right? It's what Paul was talking about there. So we have these principalities and powers that are fighting um, like, like, can I say up in the air, not boots on the ground history, but like gods in the sky, uh, reminds me of some battles that went on in Greek mythology, but it's Egyptian mythology and it's Egyptian gods and Yahweh. All right. And so the third thing that we've landed on that, you know, we know that it's that we can confidently say is the book of Exodus is a compilation. It's not just a one-off writing that, you know, Moses just penned on a piece of paper and, or whatever stone and just wrote, you know, from beginning to end Exodus one to the end that it comes from multiple, multiple perspectives, multiple traditions, uh, different tribes, different traditions, different perspectives. And that's why it sounds different. And there's overlap and there's weird stories like, jammed with other weird stories and it just honestly sometimes doesn't make a lot of sense so first it was written in exile what's the date of the exile five five eighty six five eighty six this is a account that is what date it's fourteen hundred ish yeah fourteen yeah ish fourteen eighty fourteen fifty um if you're, if you're very, being very conservative with your dating, it would be about 1,400. Okay, 1,400 plus a few it's years. Four, it's 400 years to David, 1,000 mm -hmm. to 
to 586 is the Davidic kingdom. The Babylonian uh, exile. Correct, I'm Judah. So 586 is exile. They write it in 586-ish, right? So during that exile, they're in exile. So they write it in exile, in prison, in slavery, in bondage, in abuse, with an empire crushing them. And so now we have this group of people writing the book of Exodus in this context. So we know it was written in exile. We know it's a history about the gods, right? And we know it comes from multiple traditions. So here's the theory. Oh, I'm, I'm just so excited for this one. This is a compilation from the three of us, not just one of us. It's, it's all three of us. So if all of this is true, of the book of Exodus, that it's not a historical story, but a story of the gods, a story of training and covenantal principles. If that is true, right, then this story was written to the Hebrew people in exile for their time and their needs and their purpose. Therefore, everything in Exodus meant something to the people that it was written to. We say that about every book of the Bible. That's not controversial. Here's the controversial part. It's potentially a subversive letter. It's potentially a subversive letter actually talking about the empire, the Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar of the day, using current situations and certainly the same language, the same ideas, right, of the day. So we can see other writings like this. So that's the theory. The theory is that if those three things are true, written in exile, mythicized history, and written from multiple traditions and multiple places with multiple perspectives, and they're in exile, why would they write about some historical story that happened so far long ago? And hey, this is a cute little story we're going to write about. We're proposing that possibly the book of Exodus is talking about the Babylonian empire using Pharaoh and Egyptian power and Egyptian empire as kind of the cover exactly the same way. If you take my perspective of revelation, exactly the, and I'm assuming our perspective of revelation, I don't want to speak for the two of you, but at least my perspective of revelation of what revelation did to the Roman Empire in apocalyptic way. Mm. Okay. I'm sold. That just gets me. I mean, I just said, <laughs> come on. I mean, that is just so good right there. Come on, Zondervan. Come on. <laughs> they, they Somebody's got to pick Are they listening? Up. Do we need to tag them in this video? <laughs> Please, no, I do that. <laughs> no, they wouldn't publish us at all. <clears throat> so... It's okay. We'll just do some independent book deal. Publish it ourselves. Self-published. Yeah, self-published. Just write. Just print it out on our <laughs> printers. And, like, distribute. And no one, no one will listen to us. So, <laughs> yeah. Mm. Okay. Let's just pull that. Let's just rip that apart. Let's just, let's just tear it up. That was a lot spoken. Yeah. Um, probably the biggest point that you made is that Exodus could be a 
analogous story of Babylon, the Chaldeans, to the Pharaonic Egypt, in that the editor and compiler of Exodus and the Pentateuch, I'll say the whole Pentateuch actually, was mashing this together as a underhand to the Babylonian Empire so they knew how to act once they were freed from the power because powers don't last forever. Okay, so I'm, I'm holding, mm-hmm. I'm holding Sheree's conclusion. She's, Sheree knits and she's like, this is the last stitch. Okay, so if you don't <laughs> stitch a hat in the end, you can kind of pull it all apart, can't you? Uh-huh. Yeah, that yep. would really be bad. <clears throat> so, so we're waiting. We're at the very end. We're going to do that last stitch and this hat's going to fit. <laughs> yeah. Do you want that now? Or are we still? No, we no, I don't want that now. Okay, just save that. Just save that. Yeah. That, okay. that just, we're not going to go there. <clears throat> Give me some thoughts, Shreya. Just pull it apart. Find yep. the holes. Um, what I haven't uh, verified yet is um, I want to look at how some of the other biblical authors refer to empire. Um Sometimes Egypt is the big bad guy. Um, and so I want to look at what works. Egypt is the bad guy. Um, yeah. Like see what some approximate dates are for those works. Um, and then in other works, Babylon is the big bad guy. Um, so I want to look at those works then what the dates are for those. Um, and just see if that gives us a clearer picture, picture when that shift might've taken place. Um, And if that um, helps us to connect the book of Exodus to the Babylonian empire. Um, It's interesting. If you look at that, what you just said, Revelation uses Babylon as mm -hmm. their analogy to Rome. So could the author of Exodus, editor of Exodus, use Egypt as analogous to Babylon? Right. In literature, they do this all the time. Yes. And if you look at apocalyptic literature in the 300s before Christ, right, we have like the, the just right before Christ, we have a lot of apocalyptic Mm-hmm. Stad literature that emerges and and you have books that the author is the hero right so so the book the book the person that's writing the book they put themselves in as the hero so you know that that's probably not a not a legitimate apocalyptic writing after christ you have more apocalyptic writing because of the return of christ right and that's another, uh, the reason why we have the canon the way that we do. And some of the books didn't make it in the canon was that again, after Christ, 
the author is the hero so that so that jesus isn't the hero author is the hero the person that they're talking about the person's perspective that they're they're writing from so so in in the book of exodus god is the hero mm-hmm. in the bible yeah. scripture god is the hero i know but see it see in apocalyptic literature when you're trying to be subversive and talking about empire and talking about the layers of empire god has to be the hero in all of that god defeats the empire so in in the book of exodus you see that you see that mm-hmm. where where God is the hero, Moses actually is the mess up. Right? <laughs> so, like, like he's not the hero. He's he's like has messianic like hopefulness. Like, we're hoping he's gonna be the guy. Um, <clears throat> but he's not. And so so he has messianic overtones, but he, but God is still always the hero in Exodus. So in if you start relating the literature in true apocalyptic nature, God is, God is a hero in apocalyptic literature. They're using end times cataclysmic event type ideas to subvert empire. Correct. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I'm not calling the book of Exodus apocalyptic, but I don't know what you call the red sea splitting in half and people walking across it. And then, you know, and an old whole army, a powerful army dying in one fell swoop. It seems pretty cataclysmic ending, but it's not apocalyptic in end times type ideas. I mean, we don't put Revelation as apocalyptic in end times idea either. Well, traditionally, I guess. And traditionally, so, it's seen as apocalyptic literature. Truly apocalyptic literature does not need to interact with end of times. Traditionally, it always has. It, as far because, as I know, I'm pretty limited there, right? though in my knowledge. Yeah, we put it there. We think that, uh, which I guess it's time to look up the definition of apocalyptic literature, if we're going to use that word, phrase. Um, let's just call it literature that is, is a story that's telling the story without telling the story without using the names without using the actual people and the reason why i'm coming to that conclusion slowly and more is because there's number one it's a story of recreation over and over and over again right so there's a cyclical pattern to it it's a story about god and satan uh, salvation redemption so we have big themes with big gods and you know doing battle with one another uh it's a story about how we are to live and bless all the nations uh and it's a perfect story it uses perfect numbers there's three pieces of bread on the table of the tabernacle i mean why not four you know, weren't there five people that needed to eat the bread? I mean, were they sliced into 10 pieces? No, it says three pieces of bread. 
No less, not two and a half. The mouse didn't get the third. No, three pieces of bread. 70 elders. I mean, it just kind of makes sense that uh, that it was perfect story, perfect timing, because we have these perfect cycles and perfect, perfect numbers. And so just the just the whole book in and of itself has big themes that are not historical ideas. They're metaphysic, they're Grandiose, they're, grandeur. They're they're godly ideas. So apocalyptic means the foretelling. So we've we've always um, we've always put certain piece of literature as the foretelling for the end of the world. Right. And so that we've called that apocalyptic literature, and usually that has dragons and bombs and yeah. The world's on fire and all these Apache things. helicopters coming in. Yeah. Well, that's like how what we do that now. I, I know. I know. The, uh, yeah. yeah Reg, Ronald was, Reagan was 666 for a while. Was he? Oh, I yes. Thought he was yeah, the Pope has been a couple of times. And yeah. Um, we try to connect all these dots of all the future dots. foretellings. Yeah. Because we have said that the apocalypse or the apocalyptic style is towards the end of the world where it could have just been the end of their world. Right. Yeah. Over and over and over again. And so right. I don't know if it's, if we're correct to say that it's an apocalyptic style or in just a, what should we call it? A narrative well, of different. I think it's a subversive narrative. And so like and, we have a we have a really good example of a subversive narrative in the gospels where Jesus is is uh, comes up to legion casts yeah. out legion into mm-hmm. the pigs and yeah. the pigs run off and dive off in the water and they all drown. Yeah. And so and people, pigs can swim. Pigs can swim. He was, <laughs> Jesus and the legion were in the area that the Roman soldiers for their standard or flag had a pig on the standard. Yep. And that's where all retired uh, Roman officials would go and retire to on the uh, Mediterranean Sea. Right. And so it's more of a subversive story of power and what's going to happen mm-hmm. than maybe what actually happened. Well, definitely that story is a subversive narrative. I, I never really have believed that that story is because Jesus would speak in, you know, ways that were subversive and subversive acts as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, that using, cause this is not, these are not my words. These are Sharia's words in her uh, conclusion, which can't are we here much yet. nope nope not yet <laughs> uh so she uses the word subversive um so if you just take narrative and put those two words together we have a subversive narrative so a subversive narrative to me correct me <clears throat> would be i'm writing a story with characters and ideas and depiction uh that is not here 
it's not today. It's just, it's like people of my history, people that are made up people that ideas that I'm pulling forward. Uh, but the message in and of itself is for the people today. But if I give the message in with the right characters and the true depictions, I, the message is not going to get anywhere. It's going to be, you know, probably everyone's going to be burned. I think and about Nietzsche's shatter lantern. Yeah. That was a subversive mm-hmm. narrative for the current culture. Right. But humanity uh, academics have ran with that a certain direction. That was never the intended purpose of that, of that right. story. Right. Okay. So here it is. The story. Are you ready, Shreya? I think so. Okay. Hold on. Step into the blocks. You're ready to take off on the sprint. This story (laughs) was written to the Hebrew people in exile. It's a story of mythicized history, the story of the gods. It's written from multiple perspectives, multiple traditions, and multiple, uh, multiple tribes compiled this story. Yet it was for their time, because we know all Bible stories are for the people, for their time, writing to their time, their needs, and their purpose. Paisley. Therefore, (laughs) everything in Exodus meant something to the people that was written to. And we're proposing that it's a subversive letter, actually talking about the, the Babylonian Empire and Nebuchadnezzar instead of Pharaoh and is using similar language of the current day in exile, similar current situations of the current day in exile. So Shreya concluded. Yeah. Empire is empire. Whether we're talking about the Egyptian empire, Babylonian empire, Roman empire, American empire. Um, Empire is empire and empire is not great. So we're proposing that this story is just about empire Mm -hmm. and it has to be their current empire. It just matches up too much of their current empire. And it would have meant something to those people of that day because no matter what empire you use, all empires, like Sharia just said, are built the same in a pyramid structure. In the shape of a pyramid. In the shape of a pyramid. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, so stop building pyramids. That's what Sharia told me the other day. Stop building pyramids. You were once at the bottom of the pyramid. Don't, don't get there again. Like, like turn the pyramid upside down. So... Or destroy the pyramid. pyramid. Yeah, get get rid of the pyramid altogether, right? Okay, so empire is empire, and and these stories relate to all empires. That's why it's so easy to take the book of Exodus and overlay it on the Ukrainian war and the Russian empire, like that Mm -hmm. idea of empire. Um, It's easy to overlay this over the old British imperial empire, um, it's easy to do because all empires act the same. Awesome. I'm going to stay there for a while. Probably 
I'm very comfortable in staying there for the rest of my life with the book of Exodus. Can I, can I plug a book? Because it's a better story. Different one. It's a better story. It makes total sense. I mean, that will preach for years to come. Just calling it a history story. It's just, that's just, it's gotta be more. It's gotta be more. Go ahead. Plug a book. You know, this one. Sabbath is resistant. Oh yeah. Walter Bergamon. Yeah. 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 Um, So I just wanted to highlight one of those subversive elements that we see in, um, in the book of Exodus. Um, And Bergamon makes the case that that is Sabbath. Um, That Sabbath functions as a way of stopping the pyramid um, because you're no longer participating in this, frenetic to build the empire yeah Mm -hmm. if you would have come on sunday which you were there you guys were there but if anyone else would have come on sunday that's listening uh you would have heard that sabbath is a break from production the means of production and the means of consumption (laughs) and so we can take sabbath in all different kinds of ways Sabbath is not for you. It is for those lesser than you. That's why the servants are, Mm -hmm. and the animals are included in Sabbath. Paisley, take a Sabbath. Every day. (laughs) Every day. (laughs) She's taking a Sabbath right now. Paisley is Sherea's dog that just sits there and interrupts every once in a while. You'll see the back of Paisley. Mm -hmm. Paisley's a good dog. Spinning around so she can donut. Paisley used to be my dog. Now it's Shreya's dog and upset my daughter quite much, but she's okay now. Anyway, Paisley had a lot of energy. She needed Shreya. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So just to add more to our theory and to build more is when we get into the tabernacle, there's weird things like precious stones. You need to build this thing with precious stones. You know, the things in the tabernacle and what it's built out of and how it's built. Um, probably the writer is reflecting to Solomon's temple uh, and more to Solomon's temple and saying, well, how did this whole Solomon's temple thing come about? And so let's just pull some old idea forward. Uh, so it's a, you know, another narrative to show perfect housing of God, where we have a holy place, holy of holies. We have three pieces of bread on a table. The ark is like this idea of Noah's ark. We have the menorah candle, you know, that's going to come uh, be lit up here in the temple. And like a so that's bush. like, like the burning bush, right? So we're going to call that forward and and it's probably an almond tree, right? The tabernacle, they had to, you know, they're saying that they had to build it. So it's like a creation story in and of itself is building this double wide for God. And when they get it done, the dimensions, the things in it, the names of the things in it, the, the, the basin, the tables, the chairs, you know, where they sat, everything in perfect order, perfect number, perfect setting, perfect placement. It is like the garden. It was built to be like the garden of Eden. So when you entered into the garden, you were in the presence of, of God.
Yep. That's it. And then crisis hits and they build a golden calf. Uh, and so that's almost like sin enters the picture again. And these people, they just keep going through it. Cycle of sin, just cycle of grace, cycle of sin, cycle of grace, cycle of sin. That's just a never ending story that just lasts until Jesus comes and says no more and breaks that cycle. Chains are broken and Christ is our victory. Satan is put under his feet. And he is salvation. Jake, take Exodus 32 and 34 really quick and uh, talk us talk us through those two things. And you're going to close it out. Uh, do you want me to do both of them or no? Yeah, let's do it. I mean, okay. we're at 930. We got you got 10 minutes. People can hang with us if they're listening. Let's start first with Exodus 34. If I can get up there, let me do it. Okay. Exodus 34. This is the point where God defines God's self. And probably I would say the most important passage in the Old Testament, if not the entire Bible, that that hinges on the the faithfulness, love, loving kindness, and steadfastness of of God that goes all the way to Jesus. That's why I say probably the most important passage in all of scripture. Um, Exodus 34 reads, the Lord passed in front of him, Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God. And so anytime you see a threefer, it is the most high God, compassionate and merciful. We've already talked about compassionate being the, the womb-like love the mother the, the love of a mother to a child merciful Can I ask a question yes did you just say three for a three for <laughs> that bad no so the lord passed in front of him the lord the lord a god a god so you're not saying three for for the lord the lord in hebrew do we see that the lord the lord a god is that all three the, the same words um <laughs> It wouldn't be. It wouldn't I, be, would it? If the translators are being consistent, mm -hmm. no. Here we go. I'm not correcting you at all. I'm just, that was really interesting to me. Because you're proclaiming. The Lord, the Lord, God. God, the Lord, the Lord, God. Um, so give me the names. It says. Yahweh. Oh, Lord. So I'm passed by him mm -hmm. above him face to face and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful. I would say, I would still say that's a, that is right there at three for. So you're using, what's the, what's the uh, name for God? L. L. Oh, yes. So, Yahweh, Yahweh, L. Yahweh, L. That's a three for. Definitely a three for, I just, I just wanted to know what the three for was. <laughs> so okay. every time you see so what are you saying? Every time you see God's name in, it could be three different ways too. Uh, it just, it just, the rock, um, the rock, the, the, you know, the three. I, for, I forget. Yeah. yeah there's there's, forget other, too, there's yeah. other places in scripture where it's, there's, if there's three of anything, it's just emphatic. Like there's okay. no, 
there's no exclamation points in in uh, Hebrew. There's no there's no yeah. punctuation. There's no vowels. So you kind of have to figure out what what it is. And so by putting a stack of words together, it brings emphasis to it. And then you get into these adjectives and so you have compassionate, merciful, patient, full of great loyalty, faithfulness, showing great loyalty to a thousand generations, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, sorry. And by no means, when you get into the negatives, clearing the guilty, punishing their children, as well as a third and the fourth generation. And so this is a Hebrew poem that it's called an adjectival formula that you basically put on a scale, the positive words versus the negative words. And whatever mm. comes out first shows the propensity, the, the nature of God, that God is faithful and loving kindness, but God also has the ability and will choose sometimes. I mean, you have a thousand generations versus four generations. So that probably is going to, at some point, wash that out, right? And so you just, you weigh those things and you see that, that God is very much the first half and has the ability to be the second half. Mm. Good? Yeah, that's great. Any more thoughts on that one? Just thinking about how... Um sometimes biblical scholars will make the case that God is equal parts love and justice. I um, would not say that's anywhere in scripture. Right. That is, that is and compatible. that is not the case. If we know how to read Hebrew. Correct. So how many times do you see, is my microphone working? It just cut out on me. Your microphone is so not working. I believe we're not in your ear pods. Okay. My apologies. You're fine. You're, you're, we can still hear you though. So go ahead. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your microphone's not working, but you're, you're fine. Mm-hmm. I just lost you. No, you lost us. Let me just change over to your pods. Are we back? We're back. You, you haven't, okay. we haven't lost you. Okay. You haven't lost me here. You right. lost me here. Now we're here. Okay, that's, that's okay. Backup. <laughs> we had some backup. Uh, so what I hear you saying is that in Hebrew, we see the waiting on God's love more than God's wrath. The weightiness of God's love far surpasses the weightiness of God's Good. wrath. I like that. Thank goodness. Any more thoughts, questions? No, okay. that's good. That's some Hebrew backing for exclamation point. <laughs> exclamation now, point. Let's look at Acts 2. And so a, a New Testament story is uh, Peter and the disciples were hiding in the up the up uh, stairs room that Jesus was add for Pentecost. So Pentecost happens. Pentecost is a word that I believe means 50 days, right? 50 days mm-hmm. after Jesus ascended into heaven. 
uh, Peter goes and then comes out of uh, the top room. A sound like from heaven, like the howling of a fierce wind and the entire house where they were sitting. An individual flames of fire alighting on each of them. And so at that point, we should stop and think about the fierce wind of God in Exodus 34. We should think about the, the pillar of fire, the wind that led to push the waters back. Um, at this point, we're, we're thinking about, about Exodus, the, the tongues of fire that's being lit on each person as torches. And so then you have all of these people, all of these ethnic groups, pious, pious Jews, but also people that were not Jews, Cretans and Arabs, all people that were, that were gathered in Jerusalem, especially for this, this Pentecost season. And so Peter comes down with the apostle and he raised his voice and he started speaking through the prophet Joel first. And it's that one. And then talks about Jesus and then says what David says about the messianic person. Then starts speaking again and then goes back into David. And I hope I'm not going to lose it. And it ends with those who accepted Peter's message were baptized and God brought about 3000 people into their community that day. So hold on to this phrase about 3000 people in the community that day. And not that one. Sorry. I can't actually see my tabs when I am on, on this full screen. Okay. In Exodus 35, you have Moses on top of the mountain for 40 days and extend a perfect amount of time. Pentecost is also a perfect amount of time uh, for 40 days was on the mountain and did not eat or drink anything. Comes down, smashes and gets angry. And in 28, it said the Levites did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 people were killed that day. And so the Pentecost in Acts is a direct cover-up from the wrath of God in Exodus 32. That is the same story, but flipped on its head. That God added to their number and said, taken away. That Peter and Moses both descended from the mountain one spoke in grace, the other spoke in, in condemnation and in law and in sin. And then one was an accepting of all people, all ethnic groups. And the other one was very homogenous and, and, uh, in their, in their structure. So to clarify and I, I did lose my communication tools for a period. Did you, did you cover 3,000? Yes. The number 3,000? I covered about 3,000 in each one. But did you cover the meaning of 3,000? Go for it. Okay. So in Hebrew, the number three, three pieces of bread on the table 
right? The Trinity has three parts, right? So the factor of three in Hebrew is an important number. But another number, especially in apocalyptic style literature or subversive narratives, <laughs> 1,000 is also a very important uh, number. So maybe you'll reflect on the book of Revelation and you'll see that is a millennia, the millennial mm. number is 1,000. So 1,000 right, times, uh, well, you have also the number 12. 12 is a factor, is a Hebrew number of perfection, 12 times, or excuse me, 12 tribes of Israel uh, would be, uh, you know, an example of that. So 12 is an important, 144,000 is a factor of 12. And so if you think about 144,000 being the perfect amount of people in heaven, like Revelation, well, if three is a perfect number of God and a thousand is a perfect number of people in heaven, 3,000 people dying is exactly the number of perfected people that died and 3,000 people are the number of perfected people that were saved. It's a perfect number. So 3,000 and 3,000 based on the factor of three or the factor of 1,000. It doesn't say 3,120 or 152. It says 3,000. So it's more, for, it's more for story than historical accuracy. Right. And so it's not historically an accurate number, but it is the exact number of the first Pentecost is fulfilled with the exact number in the second Pentecost. Correct. 1,000 is also three tens, 10 times 10 times 10. Yeah. What's the factor of 10? What's the Hebrew significance of 10? I thought that one was like. Uh, I'll have to look it up. Like perfection? No, seven. So like completeness? Seven could be eight. I'll have to look it up. I mean, lots of numbers like the, the old ages in mm-hmm. it's still um, it's a, 10, 10 is also a complete number, like three and seven. It's just a shows a another number around name and it's and it has to do mm-hmm. with fingers. So, so like the old names or the old ages in the uh in the old testament Genesis where people were like, you know, 777 years old, happened to be 777 years old. Well, that was perfect. Um, or a factor of three or a factor of 12. All those numbers are a factor of something. And so it's a Mesopotamian way of aging people in status. They didn't actually live to be 900 years old. They lived to a perfect age and a perfect status. And it was a way of notating who was of age and who was of status. Mm-hmm. So the Hebrews had definitely different ways of notating, hey, this is an important number, or like 3,000, hey, this is an important event, and this should remind you of the other event, and that's what Peter was doing in Acts 2. Good stuff. Woo! Tired. All right. 
Wow. Well, we covered a lot, and I think that uh, that's enough for tonight. And uh, if you, again, want to go back, because we talked in a lot about things that were covered in other episodes tonight. So if you were confused at all tonight about different subjects, different topics, you know, I don't know, there's like 150 of these online now, or however many there are. How many of these are? 10? 10 weeks? Have we gone 10 weeks? Not sure. Perfect amount. Yeah, Wonderful. perfect. Seven, 12 weeks. We've gone 12 <laughs> weeks. However many weeks we've gone, go back and listen to them all like three times and you'll be good. And uh, you'll be able to listen to this and, and glean maybe a little more insight. All right. Thank you so much, both of you, for your insight tonight. I think that is, we covered some good stuff. I think some kind of life-changing things inside. Uh, the, the Pentecost idea is life-changing. Empire being empire, pretty much life-changing, very relevant. And also the subversive narrative. Good stuff. This will preach for the rest of our lives. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Have a wonderful day. Rest of your day. Good night. Thank you. Bye. Good night.